Welcome to the Beehive Capital Show. I'm Douglas Abusu. As always, I'm here with the Beehive Capital Management Team. On the Beehive Capital Show, we provide a medium for the startup ecosystem's most respected and trusted leaders to share their insight so entrepreneurs and investors can flourish, even during these trying times. Alex Norman joins us today. He is the Canadian Partner for Angelists, the General Partner of N49P, as well as the co-founder of TechTO. Alex, welcome to the Beehive Capital Podcast. Hi, Douglas. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm super glad to have you here with us today. I'm excited to be here, so <laughs> I'm hoping the conversation lives up to the potential. I think it will, most definitely. And actually, with that said, you have a great deal of experience in the management consulting uh, ventures, investing. Uh, I would love to hear your current activities. You're currently the Canadian partner for AngelList. You run a, a fund yourself and you're also the founder of TechTO. Could you give us a bit more details on on these uh, activities and roles that you're currently engaged with? So if you look at the high level, all three activities are focused on helping grow the early stage tech ecosystem across Canada. Uh, and then how do each role, each one contributes is as following. TechTO, which is poorly named because it's now across Canada, uh, provides a community and events and ways for uh, tomorrow's founders to learn from today's founders. It's a community, we do events, we have an online membership and where people learn from other people's experience meet people that they need to advance their career, and provides advocacy for the ecosystem. The second thing is that my role at AngelList is really focused on getting more capital into the Canadian ecosystem, especially at the early stages. AngelList is a platform where angels and VCs can raise more money for their investments. Um, it's a global platform. And over the last, you know, for the last few years since we've, I've launched it here, we've been investing about $25 million USD into the Canadian ecosystem, particularly in early stage. And finally, uh, about to close a new fund, 10 million USD focused on pre-seed investing, where I'll invest in, let's say 20 companies and all the teams should be amazing, but I help them get to their inflection point quicker by either providing advice, mentorship, prioritization, or um, opening up potential customers for them. Beautiful. So now with that said, early stage, you said pre-seed. And uh, with the pre-seed, what have you observed as the main challenges that pre-seed ventures face, specifically regarding their customer base and figuring out who their customer is and then how to go about that at that specific stage in time? So I, I think there's a few common mistakes there's no silver bullet here. First is some companies, the biggest problem they have is they have a technological solution and they're not really solving a problem. So they, they say, I'm going to, you know, got this technology, let's say machine learning, and I, I have a, a vision, you know, vision based machine learning, and I'm just going to figure out how to solve a problem. And, and they, they're going technology first. So they don't have a customer in mind. And I think the next step below that is they just, try to boil the ocean. They're going for every possible customer. They don't have a customer mind. So I think if you look at it, the big problem is when someone's having trouble getting traction is 
they don't do customer development. They don't have a target, specific target customer in mind. And, or when they do have some, some initial customers, they don't really focus on retention. They just try to grow as quick as possible. So a few different problems, but it breaks down to knowing who your customer is, targeting very niche, understanding why you love your product and focusing on getting to retention. Because once you understand who your customer is, what, what problem you solve for them, and getting them to stick around, you can start growing much better. I see. Layering on the current economic environment, it kind of complicates things a bit more going forward. And so with that said, uh, how I think about things is that when things are um, kind of complicated or uncertain, it's always best to go to the fundamentals. And that kind of leads me to ask, ask you, what would you say the fundamentals are in really thinking through a customer base, how to kind of grow and maintain that customer base, and then how that kind of ties into the ability to raise funds going forward. So that's a very multifaceted question <laughs> we should try to break down. And I think I'm I'm going to give you as generic answers possible, but there is really maybe two different paths and two worlds. You can look at early stage startups. There's one, solving known problems and taking companies a bit into the future using current technology. And there's the ones that are so far in the future, their approaches are different. So I'll take the easier one in this given circumstances. I think the first thing startups have to realize is they exist to add value to someone. And add value could be generically, most VCs will say it's solve a problem. And that problem could be a wide thing. It could be a very tactical problem. Hey, um, I, I need a better solution for getting from A to B. That's what Uber solves. Or it could be something that uh, doesn't look like a problem, but is a problem. I don't know what to do with my spare time. That's what lots of social media uh, resolves. So the first thing is to understand what's the problem you're solving, why, and then who the potential customer for that that has that problem, who faces that problem the most. And then what's your positioning and how you get to that customer? So it's really a four-step process to get to those customers. One is, what's the problem? Two is, who has faces this problem the most? Three is, how do I position so these people can understand the problem? And four, how do I get access to that customer? So three and four can be uh, reverse in order. And so let's just let's try to make an example uh, to make this clear. So let's start with Facebook. I don't know what to do with my spare time. Believe it or not, it's entertainment, right? That's It's, it's educate me, entertain me. Who had the biggest problem? Well, when Facebook started, they targeted uh, university students. University students work really hard, have lots of courses, but they have a, a fair amount more spare time than uh, people in the workforce and with kids. Um, third thing is, what's unique positioning? Well, the unique positioning was, hey, stay better in touch and inform what your friends are doing. And then how they get it there, they actually built a, a viral product where customers invite other customers. So those are the four aspects to getting and knowing your customer. Just knowing your customer without either understanding the problem you're solving, how to get it, or what unique value proposition doesn't really do it. Um, so that was the first part of your question. I think the second part of your question is how do you do it under certain uncertainty today? Um, I think the current market, and it's changing dramatically month to month or week to week right now because of the mindset of the general population. I think current market makes it hard to go explore a problem. When you, again, it makes it harder for the stuff that are either trying to invent the future or take a technology and find a problem. 
So you have to have some hypothesis who you want to address. And I think addressing mass market consumers and doing customer development to understand how to answer each of those four questions is harder now than before, but you could probably do it. So you have to get a customer that's online. So if you're targeting, you know, let's say professional services in their 20s or 30s, these people are probably online more than ever. And you could advertise on Instagram, TikTok, or Facebook, or wherever they are, and get, get, try to get them involved and do customer development that way, or maybe post stuff on Reddit. Um, if you're targeting a seven-year-old uh, woman that doesn't use technology, it's it's pretty hard to get in touch with her right now and do customer development. So I think for consumers, you have to you have to focus on ones that are ready technology adapters, go to where they are and find a way to interface with them online. I think for enterprises, in some ways, it's easier now than it was five, six months ago. Everyone's at home. If you can find a way to get in front of an executive that you know that you might be selling to, uh, they're more accessible and have more time. It's very hard for them to say, hey, I'm in Paris next week and I'm in France, um, I'm in London next week and I just don't have time to talk to you. <laughs> now everyone's at home and, and you can get on their schedule. So I, I've noticed that with the enterprise companies, they've actually seen ex- customer accessibility go up due to the current pand- pandemic. And I guess the la- last thing you ask me is how do I look at it from an investor perspective? Maybe you can clarify what you meant by that. Okay, perfect. So essentially... When you're speaking of venture-backed companies, right, there are multiple stakeholders that are all interweaved with each other. And the decisions that one stakeholder essentially makes, you need to be making these decisions with foresight. So, for example, um, if you're a founder and you're thinking about a certain customer base and a certain feature set and values or benefits from the uh, investors' point of view, they may be viewing this throughout their diligence process in terms of um, what the market size is, or is this company growing fast enough, or have they secured maybe a specific customer that we think that they can replicate this progress that they've made across additional customers. And so my question is essentially from the entrepreneur's perspective, how can they think about developing their customer base or making decisions where they can make a strong argument to investors that they've made progress that from the investor's point of view is actually also viewed as good progress? And uh, do let me know if um, I explained that well enough for you. You, ex- you explained it perfectly clear. And I'm going to go back with it depends again. And I think there's a few different variables that will impact the answer of what an investor is looking for. One is what stage of company you are, what sector you're targeting, and the investor's own philosophy. Uh, I'd say customers and market size and valuations are intermingled. So the first thing is there's an assumption here that the investor puts a lot on market size versus team or uh, potential market size. I, I think there's a few different aspects to look at it from an investor. Uh, I, I think if you look at it, so, what, so let me take a step back. What is the universal truth? The more data you have, the more I'll want to look at it and the more, um, the more I'll push back and, and try to understand your business. So I think the first thing you look at from, this doesn't matter if it's enterprise or consumer, is what is retention? And there's a couple of ways to measure retention. It's actually, what is retention and engagement? So if a customer can churn by either a contract or by usage, 
when, how often they churn, what's their churn rate? Is it in line with that industry segment? And then is it just a per seat or per user segment? What's that versus revenue churn? Because you can have customers churn, but the customers that stay longer um, get more valuable. So basically, I'm looking at, and what I'm looking at for churn is to understand what their churn and what their retention is. And to see, is this really solving a problem? And if you position it well, and are you, are people sticking around? Because that gives me a base to grow on. And then that also fits into the next thing is, you know, what is the unit economics? What's that imply about the unit economics? How much, you know, because when you look at the churn versus the gross profit, you're making that customer, you can get to hypothetical lifetime values, usually really hypothetical early on. Then you can see what's it cost to acquire a customer. How are customers finding out about you? What are you paying to get them? Um, then the next tactical thing, which I think most companies look at, or most investors can look at, is looking in those channels that you're looking to acquire customers, how much can they scale? So if you come to me and you're, you're getting all your customers off Google AdWords, I'll look at what's the volume of those AdWords. If, it's, if it looks much worse, if there's 50, AdWords, you know, 50 people searching for that versus 5 million. Um, and, then, and then I guess going to market sizing. So... I, I think that's an art versus science because it's you may have this now gets a, the qualitative thing which depends on where you're targeting. So, for example, let's say you start with technology small. Your initial target where you have traction is, let's say you go through YC and you're you're doing a dev tool. It's very easy to get lots of small tech startups, and so then there's a qualitative discussion to be had to understand is does this scale up to enterprise? Um, does it scale up to non-technology companies? What is the adjacent market and customer to solve? Or are you going to go deeper with your customers? So there's a quantitative measures, and they're going to be compared to similar companies. And there's a qualitative measure saying, what's it say about your market? What's it say about your ability to grow? Are you going to own this customer relationship and, and basically increase the value of that customer? Are you going to go across a water base? And then I think there's a discussion of what's the underlying market trends, which is, okay, why is this product going to grow? Why is your customers going to grow? You know, and so as an investor, those are sort of the metrics you're looking at. The first one is what's the quality of your relationship with the customers? Are they staying? Second one is how are you getting those customers? Can that scale? The third thing is just how big is that market? And then fourth thing is how do you grow? Are you, you go deeper with your customers? You go to other markets? And then, you know, how big is it? And I think depending as an investor, everyone wants to see a huge market. Do I need to see a huge market to, to invest? Maybe not, but I need to see the ability to grow to venture scale. So there is a minimum market size, but there could be saying, hey, I believe you're solving a problem that can scale quickly that there's no current market for, or the market's nascent. So I think it's, you know, I think it just depends on the view of investors. Some investors won't, won't invest in, in nascent markets and some will. Exactly. And so the thing that I'm trying to get to here is the insight for entrepreneurs to realize is that they need to have certain considerations in mind. For example, as you were just saying, it, it depends greatly depending on the investor philosophy, market, the business model type, etc. And although these are the thoughts that are going through the minds of the investor, these are essentially the thoughts that should be going through the minds of an entrepreneur themselves because they they need to be able to articulate these things to you. And my question is, one, yeah. first of all, do you believe that they need to be able to articulate 
all these details in depth to you or do you kind of uh, decrease the, the weight behind that given their stage in development, i.e., let's say, pre-seed ventures? Yeah, so pre-seed, like if the company's a month old, I don't expect them to have answers to these questions. I expect them to have a hypothesis. I also expect them to be able to understand the market. What I mean by that is if someone is starting a social app and they told me success from in a year and a half is 100,000 monthly active users, I'm going to turn around and go, okay, what's the comparables at an early stage? What, you know, what trajectory does that lead you to? So I, I, and I guess, the, you know, earlier companies, more they can sell me in a vision, but they have to have some idea of, they have to answer at least the hypothetical answers and be able to back that up with rationale. The more, the longer they've been around, the more I'm going to see some answers and some tracking, but it could still be hypotheticals. Uh, you know, because one of the questions that's key for me is always, what's the problem you solve and, and what's the underlying market trends and who's a buyer, right? So what's the problem you solve and what's a buyer? And, and I've, I've invested in a company pre-product, there's two founders. And so, you know, it's a hypothesis, but they could also either say, here's from our experience or here's some customer development we've done. There should be some rationale behind it. Because if you're, because again, otherwise you're just having a technology that doesn't solve a problem for anyone. Then I have to bet that you can just wander through the desert and come up with a come up with customers. And there's possible to build business that way. You just either have to be very lucky or have a lot of capital and time. I see. And for further insight to uh, specifically pre-seed ventures, when you say that that company was pre-product, what was it that really got you to take the leap? Because in addition to them, there's a great deal of companies that are also pre-product, right? So wh why would you take the, the leap with them versus the many other ventures that are also pre-product and may also have an understanding of their market? So it's not in science when you invest pre-seed. And some people are market-driven. Some people are team-driven. I'm first team-driven. So I need to see a team that I want to back. And, and that goes to... I'd say the qualitative and quantitative way of the team. So a lot of it's like their personality. Can they have they shown the ability to learn quickly? Have they shown the ability to be tenacious? Do they are they a complementary team? You could have three salespeople in a team. That's not a team I want to back because you know that's too much in depth and power in one place, and not and probably ignoring other stuff they have to accomplish. So do, so first, just overall, do I believe in a team? And then it comes to why do I back one product one versus another? It's probably in clarity of thought of how they're going to serve the market. I, I, you know, I think a lot of investors prefer to invest in a product that's in the market and shown some revenue, and it's much easier. But there's also much more questions. Um, so I can think of a few. I invested in a company that was going to solve the customer journey mapping issue for um, enterprise. The team had experience in selling enterprise software before. They understood the problem in depth and understood who the customer could be and where their position could be unique, and they had the ability to build it. So I believe their experience, and I also knew that space well enough to see, understand, because I sold projects like that for McKinsey, that this could compete in a unique way and, and capture value and actually open the market. Another investor I invested in, she was doing something in, uh, let's call it femtech, and she had done a bunch of Facebook ads to prove consumers were willing to sign up and willing to pay. She even got people to put their credit card down for off a landing page for a product that didn't exist. So she could come saying, hey, here's, a, here's how I'm targeting customers. Here's what they're willing to pay. Here's what it costs me. And here's how much it could scale. So she had 
done customer development could prove. It could be quantitative inter interviews, could be a problem someone's seen in another job. Um, I'm looking right now invested in something in the personality assessment space. To be honest, you look at the market size, it's there, but it's not clear the market size. We're not even sure what the customer is going to be, but they had enough, both the founders had eight to 10 years experience in this space, they understood their positioning. And the question is, will a customer or an enterprise pay for this first? They don't know, but they know why each one would buy it. And it's just, they're going to test which market they have to go to first. So, you know, so I've done it based on, you know, expertise and understanding the problem. I've done it on, you know, just proof and customer development. And so it's a mix of those two versus some people may be out on the market and have a product and it's a product for whatever reason. I don't think they understand. There's, there's not many customers that have, or it doesn't add a lot of value or it's a crowded space and there's no unique way of investing in. And just because I've chosen one company over another doesn't mean I'm right. I'm making my mistakes and there's a lot of companies out there. So I can't invest in all the great ones. I would love to invest in all the great ones, but I don't have that uh, the time or, you know, it's more a function of time and ability to meet everyone and, and find all the great founders. I see. So it, it seems or it sounds like there's this common thread that with each venture, it varies so greatly. Sector, business model, market, uh, traction. But there's this common theme, it seems that you're saying, clarity in thought, especially at the early stages, clarity in thought in terms of where you're going who yes. the customer base is and a fit between your experiences and ability to fulfill on that intent or that, or that road that you're going down yeah. is actually one of the most compelling factors in um, attracting interest from you. Uh, so I think clarity and thought, the ability to back up that clarity of thought. So either based on experience, you know, industry results are even better some customer development we've done a bunch of interviews people have said they'll pay us they've given us a check and then finally the ability to from a team perspective that i can believe you can execute against what you're telling me you can have the best clarity thought the best backed up but i don't believe you can build a product or i don't believe you can service the customer it's um not going to make sense and one other aspect i'd put is you're building a business model that understands the customer life cycle because i think what we haven't talked about here is different customers have different life cycles consumers you know you can Get a credit card out there. You can test it, put a landing page. They prepay for a product. That's a pretty good idea that they're paying. The question is, can it scale? What's the churn rate going to be like? What's the lifetime value? That's pretty easy. Selling to enterprise, you can't get that same proof beforehand. And are you building a model and an understanding of how much you're raising that the first few enterprises are going to take nine to 12 months to sign a contract if it's a large, like if, because I've had, I've seen people go after $100,000 contracts for a first customer. Is that the business model and how you're raising versus that? Or are you going to scale up by going after the $5,000 contract and get that up you know, over a few years, get a bunch of those, and eventually get to 50000 100000 Different approaches to getting your customers. And as the way you're raising money, the whole way you're structuring your team, reflect what you think the customer life cycle is going to be. And it's, a, it's a, something we haven't touched upon, but there is lots of trade-offs. And I think lots of times founders don't make those trade-offs right. Hey, I'm, I'm going to you know, expect to close... Ten hundred thousand dollar contracts in the first three months of our existence um, doesn't sound right, right? Um, you know, we're not going to we're not you know, we're going to sell to enterprise customers, but we're not going to worry about um, uh, security clearance and dealing with procurement and legal. It, it just shows a bit of naivety about who you're selling to and how you're going to sell. So that's the other thing I'm looking for. Like, 
does the people they're hiring, does the business model, does their revenue expectations at least make sense given on who they're targeting? And the team composition yeah. to go against those attributes. Yeah. Correct. I, okay, perfect, perfect. And now, so with that said, it seems that especially at the early stages, it's really important in who you engage with, right? Because for example, given your philosophy and your approach and what matters to you that you've just described, a venture or a leadership team can actually have those qualities, but maybe they actually reached out to an investor or a firm that actually valued a slightly different set of qualities. Maybe they valued being later in the market or uh, later in maturity or uh, further revenues. And then actually they could maybe not achieve the raise that they were looking for. So being able to target the right fit of an investor um, is really, really important in being able to progress further. And so my question is, from the investor point of view, are there certain um, nuances that you could maybe provide in terms of how leadership teams can really go about identifying the right firms or investors that are best fit for their approach, whether that be methods of identifying fund thesis, methods of getting um, checks or uh, information as to how certain VCs think about certain aspects. How would you suggest a venture really go about uh, identifying the best investor for them? So there's not one best investor for any company. They should be identifying, they should be having realistically, if you're lucky, 30 conversations gets around done. But the earlier stage you are, the more you have to have conversations. So I think there's a first thing, alignment on the stage you are, pre-seed versus seed versus A, and also the industries you focus on, right? I think that's the first cut you should do. Say, let's find, if you're, if you're doing an automotive IoT technology in your pre-seed company, you shouldn't be going to late stage or people that don't do IoT or automotive. So most VCs will say what, you know, what their thesis is and you can focus on that. Most angels, it's less clear because there's less, they do less communicating to the world. Um, so that, that's the first thing, focus on, you know, the right stage of company and the right sector focus or business model focus. And then I think for what they want out of a specific team, I think it's much harder to notice. I don't think anyone explicitly puts that on the thesis. Um, like, I guess I go, if I have a website, n49p.com. I say what I look for in a team. I see what I look for in a market, but it still won't get into full details of a customer development like that. So I think the best thing to do is go read and see what those people have said. But getting to that level of specificity at the beginning, at the early stages is hard because I don't think many people go out there and think that way. And it's interesting because if you're later stage, it gets a lot more common. You're going to need you know, you know, economics figured out. You're going to have your customer, your trajectory and all that figured out for all the investors. But the early stage, it's probably you have to knock on a lot of doors and just make sure there's targeted as possible with information out there. So, you know, and I think even with individual investors, their approach will depend on the sector you are, right? Like I don't focus just on fintech. So I, I do a wide range of stuff. So I might be feel comfortable with a lot less known unknowns in certain sectors versus other ones. Like cybersecurity, I'm going to need a lot more proof that there's a customer there because I, it's a lot more complex market, a lot more com- competitive market than other ones where I don't feel like I have the most domain knowledge. I'll go do due diligence in the market. I'll, I'll talk to customers. But for me, 
to say hypothetically why something would work. I just don't know enough what's going on there. And I, the level of me getting into cyber security company really early is it's, it's a much higher bar just because it's where mm -hmm. I, I'm not as comfortable with that versus other sectors. Mm -hmm. And again, this layers onto the variability in situations, yeah. right? And so this actually leads to the thought that especially in the early stages, let's say pre-seed, um, there's a lot of gray area. And I would think that one of the best approaches to over time gaining investment is really to open engagements and relationships. And this over a window of time, basically prove ability to execute and develop your track record and traction, right? And then be able to have touch points over a period of time where you're essentially um, building relation, giving insights into the progress that has been made, your ability to execute on what you said that you would execute on. And then this actually leads into unexpected opportunities that couldn't have really been planned out. And would you say that that is generally the way it would go with the earlier stage companies? Or um, again, what thoughts kind of come to mind with that? So yeah, another way is like, as an investor, I like investing in line than a thought. You know, I think that's Mark Suster's uh, line. So yeah, if I have a relationship, I've seen how you've acted over months or years, it's much easier for me to make a decision because I'm investing in you as much as everything else. Um, I don't think it's always a, I have a bandwidth of how many people I can have relations with and any, any individual hmm. founder has that. So that, so there is, so that's one of the variabilities there on who I'll invest in this. Like going back to the femtech company, I talked about, I saw that person, how she executed for a few years and other jobs is because I met her and I run into every few months and we had a conversation. I was always impressed in who she is, right? And what she does. So it's very easy for me to get behind. So she had a few boxes already checked when we started talking about our new company versus mm -hmm. someone that just emails me saying I'm raising and raising right now. It's gonna, I'm going to need a bit more time and insight to get there. So if you can build relationships with investors and get to know them, always better. If you can build a public track record, even better because then people don't need to know you, but they can see what you've done. Um, but it's not, it's not, it's not a privilege that everyone has, right? Cause uh, you know, like, you know, let's say someone wants to build a relationship with me. I, I, you know, I'm usually working 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I have two kids and a wife. And so I'm going to, you know, people reach out to me and say, let's talk about my business. If I happen to have time, I might take it, but you might get a period where I, I basically politely decline just not because I have anything against you or your business, but I literally don't have the time. And I think lots of investors are like that, right? It's our it's our job to know people as well as possible, but we can't know everyone. Mm -hmm. So it's so then the flip side is what can you do to to get to know enough people, and what can you do to build that? You know, what can you do so you have three references into me when you come to me, right? So not not that I want an introduction via reference, but if I if I can go back to someone and say, okay, hey, you know, I I see I saw you know um, Ian, let me go talk to Ian. What do you think of this person? And Ian has great things to say about you. So yeah. A line is better than a dot, but it's not always possible. Very interesting. So actually now thinking in terms of the outlook, this is a unique situation in, in this point in time. And again, I've, I've said it many times, you, there's a lot of creativity that's needed in terms of how to approach customer base, how to approach financing, how to approach growth uh, through these times. And I'm curious to hear what you think leadership teams should kind of 
focus their attention on to best facilitate their growth going forward out of this current environment and just be able to kind of weather the storm? So there's three scenarios right now for any company given the current pandemic. One is you're in an industry that is benefiting from this. So you're Instacart and food delivery at home. Everyone wants to do that all of a sudden. Two is your business got hit hard. You serve travel industry um, for a while, no one was traveling, or you're somewhere in between where it's not quite clear. So if you're in the first one where the market's growing really quickly, you have almost a tougher perspective from an investor perspective because I want to see you growing as fast or faster than the rest of the industry. So if you're like food delivery, how can you take any friction out of growing and how are you making sure you have the right metrics, retention, stuff like that? And how are you taking, how you, there's a bunch more land that just opened up. How are you grabbing it quick enough? Mm. If you're in an industry that's just got killed, travel, how are you positioning yourself to merge stronger than you went were before? And I've seen some companies do this, right? So, you know, focus on customer development, or I've seen companies introduce new products that can help potential customers with the pandemic. It's not their core product, but now it's got a deepening relationship. And they now went from talking to 30 customers, they now have 80 customers using a product, even if they're not monetizing it, they've built those relationships. So how do you survive? And also how do you thrive once you come out of this? So how are you laying the groundwork to just basically be essential? The ones in the middle are a bit tougher because if it's unclear what the future is, you know, you, you have to focus on growth and, and positioning for growth. And I think it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like it was six months ago, but with the overhang of it, you know, the economy is not as strong as possible. So I think at that point, it's it's what I'd expect a business to do in a normal situation is really getting to the point where you know that customers stick around and they love you and you know who that customer is and then figuring out where to go grab that customer. And then, and understanding how much that can scale before you have to either get new customers or new product or something like that. So, you know, I, I think it's don't premature growth. Focus on getting customers in and watch them stick around and and, and then basically taking all um, friction out of the onboarding process and, and retention process. And then understanding when those metrics hit the metrics, the numbers you want, how do you put gas in that fire? And understanding, so it's understanding where those customers are and how to position them. Position. And so it's sounds very simple, very difficult to do. Okay, perfect. Actually, I, th- that covers the majority of topics I would have liked to discuss. Okay. Thank you so much for the time, Alex. My pleasure, Douglas. For sure. And we'll definitely talk soon. Okay? Okay. Cheers. Thanks for joining us on the Beehive Capital Podcast. We hope this sparked new ideas, aha moments, or raised your spirits during these trying times. All the best, Douglas Obusu and the Beehive Capital Team.